Are you at a place of deep loss or grief that is just consuming you? Steve Sievers with Affinis Hospice walks with patients and their families who are in their final weeks, days, or even hours of life. Steve, grief is a part of your job as a hospice chaplain. What do you say when you walk into a room um, and that person was just told that they're going to die? Okay, Jules, here's what I tell them. I shut up and I listen. And I see you're starting to be afraid of silence right now. I know right I'm now. listening right now. <laughs> you're afraid of silence right <laughs> yes, now. Yes. And so And so are most people. But that's one, of, that's one of the worlds of hospice is to not to be afraid of silence. You just go in there and sit with them. Even if you just have to sit with people, you gain their confidence and then they start talking to you. But they might not open up for a while. And some people talk differently in this world. They don't use words. They don't have words. Some people are, have dementia. Some people are so sick they can't talk or they talk every three days or something. So communication is a lot different. You, you, you need to go in and listen. Was that something you had to learn as a chaplain? Because when you just started this off, just staring at me with silence, <laughs> I was like, well, it's going to be interesting. going to be interesting. <laughs> well, it is kind of different. It's different than my training as a pastor. See, my training as a pastor, you know, we do Christian, we do counseling. And a lot of times, you know, you're in a church and somebody comes in for counseling and you need to give them the biblical answer, right? So you, you give them, you know, they tell you a little bit and you give them an answer. Well... I've learned in chaplaincy it's a little bit different than that. And, of course, in the world of being a counselor, a, a, you know, a pastoral counselor, you also need to listen. But a lot of times we're taught we need to teach people what, you know, the scriptures say. And, of course, I still do that. But I, I spend a lot more time listening. What, what's going on? And not, just, okay, I know they've got this illness or that illness, but what else is going on? What else is going on underneath the iceberg? What's going on with their family? What's, go- what's going on with what they're thinking, what they're feeling? A lot of times somebody is told you are on hospice and they feel like the whole world's just blown up. And they feel like they're, they're in shock. And then when I go and see them... You are they know, ready to unload on you? No, they're, they're still in shock. They don't want to talk about, you know, maybe they want to talk about, maybe they don't. But what I do do is, is I try to listen first and then if I have the green light, <laughs> either from them or from their primary caregiver, their daughter or uh, family member, then I will talk to them about hospice. I'll look them in the eyeball and talk about hospice. And then when, if they start talking about it, it disarms it. It's, it's kind of like that spiritual principle, mm-hmm. light and darkness. You know, if you hold hospice in, it becomes this big, giant thing in your life and you become more and more scared. Right. I, I saw a patient this. I saw a patient this morning, and we ha- we were able to have this conversation. And this patient, I could tell that as we talked about it, she she was scared, and she said she was scared, but she used the words hospice as we were talking, and and we talked about how hospice is isn't necessarily it doesn't mean you're going to die tomorrow. I told her, I said, I've had patients two weeks, two months, two years, five years. <laughs> I said, you, I said we, we, we say you only have a certain amount of time to live, but really only God knows how much time you have to live, right? Yeah. And, you know, I don't want to give them false hope, but I do want to tell them, you know, you have a very serious illness. 
you have a very serious illness, but you know, your life is in God's hands. <laughs> your life isn't in the doctor's hands. Your life is in God's hands. But if you can talk about this like you just did, it, it, it helps you because you're no longer alone with this thought, this scary thought of hospice. But we've talked about it. Now it doesn't it have the power. It breaks ice. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't have the power that, that it had before you were able to talk about it. Well, and you were talking to me that you, this morning, you were talking to someone um, that's the patient. Does that apply to family members as well? It, oh, yeah. It their loved ones. It, it does. But the, with the family dynamic, it's, it's, it's a different thing because some family members will tell you, I don't want you to mention hospice. And so, you know, we, we need to listen to the families. We need to listen to the patient, you know. So I, if they tell me, no, I'm not going to. But then I'll tell the family member this. I'll say, okay. I said, I, I won't talk about it at all. But I will tell you one thing. Even though you think she doesn't know she's terminal, she probably knows more than you do. But because of, I won't say this, but because of your family, because of family dynamics, they won't talk about it. And so you have to know what are the family dynamics you're dealing with. If family dynamics, they don't talk about the elephant in the room, okay? You don't talk about it. Other families do. They're, they're able to talk about it. And so every family is different. And some families, maybe it's not even the elephant in the room. Maybe there's some son who is an alcoholic or he's a thief or, and that's the main issue. So it's, so it's things in their lives that they have pushed off, pushed off talking about it. My son's an alcoholic, or this is what's going on. And now they're at the last stages of their life, and they're finally willing to say, okay, this is, let's talk about this difficult thing we've been hiding from. Well, they might or they might not. But when I was telling you that, Jules, it was more for, <clears throat> it was more for, for me to realize, hey, this person is has these dynamics going on. They don't want me to talk. And after I say that, they still might say, I still don't want you to talk about it, you know, and, and, that, and that's fine. Or I won't, I won't even talk about it, but I know that this is going on. And so that's, that's where you just go in and you build rapport. You just build rapport with people. You just be with people. You just hang out with them. If they say, well, Champlain really like, he, you, know, he, you know, he likes basketball <laughs> or he likes sports, you know, can you talk to him about sports? Some people might not want you to talk about spiritual stuff. It just, everybody's different. And our nurses are key. Because our nurses will say, you know, they'll say, well, we're not so, you know, we're not that spiritual. We really don't want, you know, we really don't want, you know, the chaplain to come. And the nurses will say, well, you know, it'd be good if he came, you know, he, you know, it's, it'd be good just to talk with him, you know. And so, of course, I want to bring the spiritual. But a lot of times, to me, part of the spiritual is knowing people. And for me, that's the first part. If you know somebody, if you know their life, you know their story, you're getting to know them Man, that's the beautiful part of, of life and is, is relationships, you know. And so that's where I might go first. It, it just depends, you know. And, and everybody has, an, and sometimes it's easier to talk to the chaplain. And they, so they want a chaplain. Or sometimes it's really hard. I don't want to talk to a chaplain. Let me get, can I give you an illustration? Yeah. Okay. We do a thing called a spiritual assessment, okay. So that's a big word, isn't mm -hmm. it? You go in and you do a spiritual assessment. Well, I went and saw a guy one time. I was doing a spiritual assessment, right? So I go in there, and so I got to get all this information down in this spiritual assessment. I'm ready to write a book, right? So I go in there and I talk, see this guy. He's about 75 year old. He's a Vietnam vet. He's got PTSD. He's got a revolver over on the on the on the side of his uh, in, in the living room there. And I go in there and, I was, and they said they wanted, they were able to see the chaplain from one time. So I went in there and I said, well, you know, I'm the chaplain. I built some rapport. We talked a little bit, you know. And then I said, um, you know, it's okay if I ask you a couple questions about, about spiritual life. And he said, sure. 
And I said, well, just give me a little spiritual background in your life. He didn't say very much, but he said a lot. This is what he told me, 75-year-old man. He said, when I was six years old, I went to church, and the Bible study class that I went to, the lady told me she didn't really like how I was dressed. At six, and then that was it. End of my spiritual assessment. But with that, not much was said, but a lot was said. And so there's something in chaplaincy that I love. It's called reintroducing God to people. You get a chance not to introduce God to people, but to reintroduce God to people. A lot of people have misconceptions. We all know about Satan and the games that he likes to play. Right. But what happens in the world of chaplaincy oftentimes is you get these people that haven't heard anything about God for decades. They, ha- they have a spiritual assessment. Mm-hmm. This guy had one seven decades ago, and that's what he's been living on. Okay, But now you have a chance to reintroduce God to somebody, the God of love, the God of grace, the God who loved him and is crazy about him and has died upon the cross for him. And so this is, this is the world that, that you come across. You never know what you're going to come across. Hmm. You said before recording when you walked in, we were drinking some coffee together and chatting, and you said um, that you love um, broken things. You love, and it's very unique, you know, because when somebody is suffering and um, in deep grief, a lot of times people pull away. Mm. But you're, God has knit your heart together to go towards. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I use that illustration. You know, you see a light, and what happens? The moths go to the light, right? The moths go to the light. They see the light. Shh. And, you know, I don't know what it is. You know, I, I, I can relate to all kinds of different people. I played basketball in France for 10 years. You know, I've been on staff at a big church in an in a, um, upper-middle-class neighborhood. Um, I've always you know, I've been an ambassador, you know, in, in France. i lived in France. I speak French. I, I relate to all kinds of people. But there's something special in my heart for broken people. And just like those moths are drawn to light, I feel like I'm kind of drawn to brokenness. I've experienced some brokenness in, in, in my own life, and that's part of it. And that's also part of my training. Sure. <laughs> God will break you so that you can deal with broken people because there's broken people everywhere you turn. Right. And in a way, I've kind of had a privileged life. I've had, some, I've had a fair amount of brokenness, but I've had a privileged life. I've lived in Europe. I've been all over the place. And I just feel like God has taken me to school in this area in order in order to relate more. Because how can I relate to the world I go, I walk into every day if I haven't been broken? Right. And so that's, that's the world I live in. I wanna give you another illustration. I had a patient, great guy, great guy, um, overweight, African-American fella, in a wheelchair, legs amputated. He's about 65 years old. A guy that shines for God broken, shining for God. I saw him a few times. Then I went and saw him one day. And he, was, he, he had been on oxygen, but he, he was doing good this day I saw him. I went and saw him, and he's on oxygen, <clears throat> and he's breathing. And I said, hey, John, how you doing? 
his nephew's sitting next to him. I'm not sure if he's going to talk to me. You know, he's going, he's, he's going downhill. He's not, he's not doing real good. So I talked to him. I'm there, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes. And I go, John, I'm going to read you some scripture. John loves scripture. <clears throat> so I go, so I get my Bible. I get up next to John and I go, John, I got a scripture for you. I want, I want to read to you. He said, oh. <sighs> you can't talk, right? I don't, I don't think he's talking. I go, the Lord is my shepherd. He goes, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. I shall not want. We did the whole psalm. John wanted to quote scripture. And we went through the whole psalm. But between each verse was a... Breathe. Has no strength. Doesn't want to talk. Doesn't want to talk to anybody. And that's what happens in hospice a lot of times. You'll see people, they can't talk. They don't want to talk. They, they wait until they have something important to say, maybe one word or two words. Because there's so much strength just to... It, it, yeah, yeah. There's so much. They're so broken and they're, they're, they're so sick and they're hurting so much that it takes... It takes so they, they, they really dice it out how mm-hmm. much. Mm-hmm. You know, I told him, I said, Jim, sometimes the best thing we can do is, is rest in God. We think we have to fight. We think we have to do all this stuff. We think we have to be the person that does it. Well, you can't do it anymore. And sometimes the best way to fight is to rest in God. And so that's that's one thing, is, is to learn to rest in God. Because you've been pushing as... Right. Your whole life you've been pushing. You've had the world by the tail. You've, you've done everything. And a lot of people, they get to the end of their life and... You know, and you know they're not worried about themselves. They've been taking care of their kids. Their their fifty year old kids are still their kids, and sometimes they have to tell their kids. I mean, sometimes the kids have to tell them, "Dad, it's okay. It's okay to go. You can go, Dad. I'm going to be okay." And sometimes people hear that, and then they're ready to go. And so, people are wrestling with all these things. But to answer that question you said, Jules, about some of the things, you know, a lot of times people say, you know, I'll call people in bereavement because every month I'm calling all kinds of people, and they say, you know, how you doing? Oh, I'm doing good. I'm staying busy. <clears throat> you know, you know, th- th- things are going good. And, you know, it's the person where everything's going great. Those are the people we're a little bit concerned about. <laughs> it's the people that are crying and wailing and hurting that we're that we're more fine with. I have an illustration. I know a guy. He's a pastor. He was the only man, male in the family, and he 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 had to do the he had to do his uncle's funeral, right? So he had to be strong. He had to be strong for everybody. So he's strong. He's 25 years old, right? He's strong for his uncle. He's strong for his aunts. He's strong for his mom. He's got to be strong. So he's strong. So he's strong. He does the funeral. Two years later, his uncle used to be his golfing buddy. Two years later. He's in a foursome. He's playing golf two years after the death of his uncle. And this guy hits this long drive. And the ball goes up in the air. And when he saw it, it reminded him of his uncle. And almost inadvertently, he falls to his knees and starts crying. He had never, he had never really grieved this death. You know, he, he, and because he had to be strong. And that's one of the things, Jules, that you're talking about is, is when people, I tell people, yeah, you got to be strong, but you also have to be weak. You have to be strong, but you have to be weak. You have to be weak because when you're weak. Well, and Steve, I'm, I'm thinking being weak is being strong. Right. I mean, you know what I mean? Let's <laughs> right, turn right, that on it because right. to allow yourself to 
to um, grieve right. and to face the fact right. that we all die. Right. And there is a heaven and a hell. That's vulnerable. That's right. That is intense. All right. And, and it, which leads me to the next question is, um, what is the difference between mourning and grief? And is there a difference? Well, yeah, those are words we use in the world of in the world of hospice. I think grief is kind of the overarching. <clears throat> you're grieving somebody. You know, somebody has died, and you're you are grieving. That there's this grief. It's it. It can be interior. It can be exterior. But it's it's you're you're in you're in grieving mode. Mourning is more of a physical manifestation of grief, like crying wailing, getting angry at somebody, um, you know, being frustrated, um, talk, talking, you know, nonstop. Mourning is, you know, in the Bible, you look at the Psalms of lament and what the whole, what, what, what the Jewish people did. It was kind of amazing. They did this thing for seven days. I forgot, I forgot what it was called. But, but for seven days, they, they sat on short stools <laughs> to, to be lowly. It, it, was, it was a physical, I, I need to be lowly for seven days. And then it went, it, it went into 30 days of, of mourning, you know, of just grieving. Of They would encourage you to mourn, to tear your clothes, to wail, to, you know, all of those things. And now fast forward to 2019, where I feel like sometimes we often think that if I'm a Christian and I'm a good Christian, uh, then I will not be sad because I know where my loved one is. I know that they're not suffering. So put a smile on and keep going. Jules, that is a great question. That's a great thought because I feel, especially in the South, there, there is this, there is this um, almost this unspoken rule that says there are certain feelings that you cannot feel. There are certain things you cannot say. You always have to be upbeat. You always have to be happy as a Christian. If you're a good Christian, right? The bad Christians aren't <clears throat> right. Yeah. And so if you're <laughs> grieving, yeah, you you can't tell people about that. Now, in some churches, it is true. Some places, it's not true. But for some reason, you believe that. And so you feel like, like you have to be, you have to put on a certain air. All right, and, but what does God say? Okay, here's, here's, here, here's a great thing. In the Psalms, you will find all over the Psalms, God, where are you? God, why? God, where are you? Yeah. And then here's another one. And this is what, 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 let's go back there because David was a man after God's own heart. Right. And he even questioned, where right. are you? Right. I'm in grief. I'm, I need you. Exactly. It's all over the place. In Habakkuk, the same way, you sure. know, where, where are you when there's, when, when there's no cherries on the cherry tree, when there's no animals in the stall, mm-hmm. you know, but I will And the wicked no are promising or right. are, are going up and right. I'm going down and I love you. But here's the other one. Sure. Here's the big scripture that most pastors don't want to touch. When Jesus was on the cross he yelled my god my god why have you forsaken me why have you forsaken me if jesus can can yell at the father all right but then how do you grieve in a way that honors god well and for example jesus honored god in that I think part of honoring God 
is to be honest. When we're honest with our emotions, now obviously if you stay there, and we know that Jesus' anger was righteous, but we also know that Jesus in Hebrews learned obedience through what he suffered. And once again, if Jesus learned obedience that way, how much more us? But, you know, when I think about um, that statement that Jesus made, you know, he's, he went beyond that. And just like we do, but God is big enough for us to be angry, for us to be frustrated. Just don't stay there. Yeah, you know, you know, be you, you can be there for a while, but you know. And I like this. I like it when people are angry. You want to know? I tell you, what's bad is when people are indifferent and they say, "Well, there is no God. Who cares?" When somebody's mad at God, you know what they're really thinking? They're thinking, "Hey, I know you're up there. I know you're up there. Why in the world don't you do something?" Right. So that's kind of where that that that's kind of where that thought comes from. Mm-hmm. Do you um, do you find the Bible's full of examples of people who are expressing sorrow? Now, I know you said anger, but what about sorrow? Jules, I had I had one more story about anger. I kinda, oh, I, I, I kind of wanted sorry. to stick to anger. You wanted to stay on anger, and I'm oh. making you move on because you said you can be angry, but you just can't stay there. So I'm saying, Steve, you can't stay there. Okay, I got a story for you. But that. what about sorrow? Okay, I'll, I'll, if this story will give you everything. Because I thought we're supposed you, to. Hey, oh. if, we only, if we only got three minutes left, I'm going to give you everything. Okay. <clears throat> okay, I went and saw a patient. This lady probably she probably weighed less than seventy pounds. She's laying in her bed, oh. double amputation. Both amputations, if I understood it right, were within six weeks of each other. Mm. I went in there suffering, just suffering, okay? But the, the nurses had done a job and getting the pain down and everything. Anyway, I'm talking to the daughter-in-law. And I went in there and saw this lady and, whew, I mean, it was tough. But anyway, this daughter-in-law kept telling me, you have to see my husband. You need to talk to my husband. The patient's son. Sure who's got all the responsibility on him, right? He's calling all the shots, right? <clears throat> okay, so I go, where is he? She goes, well, he's over here at the mechanic shop. So, so, so I go and see him. I go and see this guy. He starts talking to me, and he says, I said, hi, I'm Steve. I'm the chaplain, the hospice chaplain. And he says, okay, and he starts talking to me. And pretty soon he goes, he goes, that first amputation, he goes, I was okay with that, I guess, a little bit. But that second one, it was all about the money. It was all about the money. And then, he, and then he looked at me and he says, what do you think, chaplain? What do you think about that? And, you know, I'm a good chaplain. I want to avoid the question, right? <laughs> I'm going to be quiet and listen, right, Jules? And, yeah. and not say anything and just kind of let it go on so we can move on to another question, right? He wouldn't let me do that. He kept looking at me. He goes, what do you think? Okay, <clears throat> I'm in a no-win situation, right? <laughs> and so I go, <clears throat> and so I tell this guy, I say, I say, man, I, I, don't, I don't, I said, that is such a tough situation. I said, I would hope, I would hope that this doctor did not do this for the money. I would hope he did it because he felt it was the best thing to do in this situation. Well, the guy got a little bit more mad. <laughs> he yelled at me a little bit more. And then we talked, and I listened, <clears throat> and then I left, praying, saying, God, just bless this guy. Be with this guy. Be with this family. This guy calls me. I'm on the road. About 20 minutes later, he calls me. I say, hello, this is Steve, Chaplain Steve. And he goes, <clears throat> this is Ed. I was just with you. 
He said, I am so sorry I yelled at you. I am so sorry that I yelled at you. I said, Ed, that's part of my job for people to yell at me. I said, if you got nobody else to yell at me, I, you know, I, I want you to yell. I, I want you to yell at me. Anyway, we talked. He went on. I asked him. We were talking about funeral stuff. We, we talked about doing a funeral. So listen to this, if I can finish the story. <laughs> so he ended up doing a funeral. So I go into the house. We're doing the funeral at the house. There had been a, there had been a suicide in the basement about 25 years before. And I go in the house. I'm doing this funeral. And a guy stands up. You know, very, you know, about 30 people, a lot of young people here too, you know, great grandkids and stuff. And this guy gets up and, he, and, he, and I'm leading this service in the house, very informal. And this one guy says, he starts saying some stuff and he says, well, you know something? I'm blankety blank blank mad. I'm angry. You know, and he, start, he starts talking a little bit about, the, you know, some different things. And then he's done. He sits down. And now back to the chaplain, right? I, I need to continue the service, Right. <laughs> And so I said, Jim, I said, thank you for telling us what we're all feeling and thinking. And, you know, we talked a little bit more. I think I sang an old hymn or something. And I couldn't help but think that during that, those moments with what, what had happened in the basement, what had happened in the room next door, this, this, this amputation, um, what it, that what had happened... Um, that this house turned into a chapel that day. And God was in that place. And this son was glad that we, that we did a funeral and that we honored God in this place. Steve, the Bible, it's full of examples of people expressing sorrow, right? Sorrow. You know, there are a lot of illustrations of sorrow. And those ones I just gave about Jesus on the cross, David, all through the Psalms, you know, question marks, God, why? All, all these questions, it's all over the Psalms. Uh, you know, I love the Psalms for that reason. And I don't know what it is, but for some reason, in our American culture, we think that everything has to be positive, everything has to be wonderful, everything has to be great. And I'm going to, if, if, I, if I live right, I'm going to kind of be blessed. And Dr. Larry Crabb said something real interesting. If you live a good life, you will be blessed. And he says, you know something? That usually works. You know, that usually works, but not always. And <laughs> I kind of thought of that. I said, yeah, hey, that, that's, kind of, that's kind of an interesting way to look at it, but it's true. And, when, and a lot of times I know in my life is that it's in those sorrows, it's in those broken times is when I can hear God. That's when God moves the most in my heart because he uses broken things. He uses broken circumstances. Amen, amen, amen. You know, Psalm 34, 18, I think it is, God is near to the brokenhearted. God is near to the brokenhearted. And I'll tell you something, in the world of hospice, I have seen things happen. It's kind of funny. I've been a Christian for 45 years. That's a long time. And it's almost like, you know, my early years as a Christian, you know, God does all these miracles. You know, I remember one time I prayed for this car that didn't work. And my dad said, if you can get that stupid thing out of the front yard, it hasn't worked in six months. I prayed for it and it started up, ah! I use it in my painting business. You know, when you're young in the Christian faith, you do these things, all these miracles happen. And then God takes you through a time of wilderness where he's quiet. He's quiet. Yeah. You, you don't see a lot of answers. And But you want to know something? I don't know if there's a pattern to this, but a lot of times in this world, 
of death and dying and families coming together, I see God do some amazing things. All right, but Steve, what about the person that says, okay, God draws near to broken things. I'm hanging on to God's truth, but I don't feel it. Mm, Great question. Great question. You know, there comes a time that we... We, all, all of us who've gone to conservative Christian churches our whole life, you know, have heard the whole thing. Don't follow your feelings, you know, follow the word. Well, just it's easy. <laughs> but when you see your loved one dying right. or, or, or you have a tragedy, just right. all of a sudden happen to you. It's, it's hard. Right. I told a patient this morning, this patient found out that they're on hospice and this patient is struggling. This patient is hurting. And I told this patient something. I said, you know something? Your life is winding down. We don't know how long you have. Your wife, your life is winding down. You just heard about being on hospice. And are you, are you afraid? Yeah, I'm afraid, you know? Um, are you frustrated? You know, I used all these words and they were, yes. I said, do you believe in God? She said, yes. And I said, you want to know something? And I smiled at her. I said, that's faith. You know, we talk about faith a lot. We talk a lot about faith, but when you're broken and you're hurting and everything's going wrong mm. and you still believe, mm. that's faith. Well, when, when and, and you still believe and it has to be real. Right. It has, right. What right. Jesus says in those red letters has to be true when you're right. in that place where right. if it's not true, then you mm. aren't coming back. You right. know what I mean? Right. That's right. And, and, and here's the other thing. Another thing about being a chaplain I think is, 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 is neat is there's people like this person this morning, like many people that I have seen, sometimes people just need to be reminded. Here's a person that would, would have liked to have been in church, um, but for the last decade they haven't been able to go to church. And so my thing is, well, the church is coming to you. Mm-hmm. So I go, I'll sing, hymn, I'll sing old hymns to people, I'll read some scripture to people, I'll pray with them, or I'll just sit and listen. But... A lot of times people just need to be reminded when people are hurting and they're broken like that and, yeah. and there's nobody around them, they're laying in this bed and there's nobody around them, they just need to be reminded. That's all, that's all this person needed this morning was a reminder, yes, God is with you. And, you. and I told, before I left, I told her, thank you for your faith. Thank you for your faith. Your faith is such an encouragement to me. When you believe like this, even though everything doesn't look good, you still believe. That's faith. And that scripture that says, we don't walk by sight, but we walk by faith. Now, before we wrap up uh, our time together, let's spend a couple of minutes talking to family members um, who, you know, have lost that loved one. And um, and maybe is believing a lie that it's going to get better with time. Because does it, Steve? You know, it's kind of like people say, we want to be able to tell them that things get better. And, you know, in a way, I think things soften. I don't know if they necessarily get better. Here's kind of a thought I have. I remember when I went through a very, very difficult time in my life. It was a divorce that I went through. And I remember coming home broken. And I walked into my my apartment and I fell down. I just felt like somebody had kicked my insides inside out. Just broken, hurting you know, my life had blown up and just, just feeling, God, what is going on? And, and I had this, 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 this feeling where God, God said to me, Steve, my love goes deeper than your pain. And so it's kind of like, no matter what you're going through, God's not going to necessarily take the pain away. He's not going to take the sorrow away. 
But God's love will come deeper than that pain. And he will undergird you in that pain and in that suffering. And you know something? There was a book that was written about suffering. Um, I forgot the counselor's name. Very, very good book. And he said one of the greatest testimonies to faith is people who believe in suffering. He gave the story of Mother Teresa and a skeptic that said to Mother Teresa, they both knew this person. And he said to Mother Teresa, how can you believe? Look at her. Look at the suffering. Look at what she's gone through. How can you believe in God? He said, he said, where's God? Where is God? He looked at Mother Teresa in the face. Where is God? And Mother Teresa looked at him right in the eyeball and said, well, it's easy. God's right here. Where have you been? Wow. Well, and, uh, you know, we, we all grieve differently. And knowing how to support um, somebody who's going through a tragedy, I, I think it's, it's hard for me because I want to give them what I would want to receive and assuming that we're all on the same page and that we're all experiencing grief the same way. All right. So in the last couple of minutes now, let's talk, uh, how do I interpret and know what to do for my friend, my neighbor, my family? Great question. Great question. One one thing that we're, we're taught in the world of hospice and, and it's true is everybody grieves differently. And sometimes there's family members when they see somebody laughing, you know, you've told some stories about your loved one and they're laughing about it. They look and they're like, how can you be laughing? You need to be in sorrow. But you know, everybody grieves differently. Everybody had a different relationship with the person. Everybody has a different personality. Everybody's, everybody's different. And so we can't expect people to be grieving the same way. And so in a way that question I think the most important thing is to go in all ears, be present and listen. And if they're talkative and they want to talk and they want to crack jokes and they're kind of nervous about it, then laugh with them, crack jokes with them and stuff, you know? Let them take the lead. Right. If they're just in sorrow and pain and they can't talk, you know, they, they don't even want to talk. Maybe like Job's comforters. The first part of Job's comforters did a pretty good job, didn't they? First part of the book of Job. They sat with him. When they opened their mouths, when they started getting into trouble, right? But there's, um, I think if you listen to people, if you listen to people, you can get cues and see what they do need. All right. So, Steve, if someone is listening and uh, they want to get more information uh, from you and talk further, or if they want to get information on FNS Hospice that you're through, how can they get more information? How can they reach you? You know, you can reach us at affinishospice.org. Um, which is A-F-F-I-N-I-S, hospice.org, or you can call 706-705-6000.